Friends, today we are starting a new sermon series. It is the Gospel of John, and we are talking about the stories of Jesus that are contained in the Gospel of John. So before we dig right into that, I want to read with you uh, from the beginning of John's Gospel. If you have your Bible, this is a great time for you to open it up, turn to John chapter 1. If you don't, that's okay too, we'll have it for you on the screen. But I want to read John chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 5 and 9 through 14. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 and 9 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Amen. Friends, welcome to the first Sunday of Lent. How many of you know what Lent is? Raise your hand. Okay, some of you raised Baptists, maybe you didn't get this. When you were kids, Lent is this 40-day season of preparation and renewal. Oh, someone is giving me a dirty look. You didn't know about Lent in the Baptist church? Oh, okay, I beg your pardon. Good for you. Good for you. I don't want to cast aspersions on anyone this morning, especially not the Baptists. I love the Baptists. So 40 days. Uh, why 40 days, right? So Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness in prayer and fasting. So we take time during the season to pray and to fast and to focus on the things of God. Uh, 40 because the Israelites wandered in the desert for how long? 40 years, right? And so we remember that there is a wandering, there is a journey, that we are on the way somewhere to the promised land as they were. We are on, on the way. And so 40 days is a reminder that this is a journey we are taking with God as our leader. Now, when we come to Lent, we focus on these two ideas, uh, perhaps our least favorite ideas, death and sin, right? Lent is a focus on death and and sin. And so let's be honest, we don't really want to talk about those things. We don't, we don't want to think about it. We certainly don't spend a lot of time talking about it at parties with our friends. And, and apart from some jarring uh, diagnosis or from tragic event, we don't usually stop to consider that we are going to die. One day, all of us, we are going to die. We don't like to think about that we're temporary, and we've been trained and taught, right, to be afraid of death or maybe just even to deny the reality of death altogether. But during Lent, we come face-to-face with this reality. We even go so far as to put ashes on each other's foreheads, right, on Ash Wednesday. And then the pastor says to you, remember, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the truth is, friends, this, we are all going to die one day. No matter how much money is in your bank account, no matter how many friends you have on Facebook, no matter how many people report to you at your job, no matter whether you fly coach or first class or on a private jet, there will be a day for all of us when we breathe our last breath. 
And the point of saying that, right, is not to be morbid or to be depressing, but to be honest, right? We know the people who live with their own death in mind live better lives because they get it that life is finite, that I need to make the most of what I have, that this is a gift I have received, and I'm accountable to God for what I do with it. So we focus on death. We also focus on sin. And during Lent, we name this reality that we are sinful, that we have disobeyed God, that our lives are broken in some ways. And some days it feels like they're broken in small ways, and other days it feels like they're broken in really big, major ways. And so we call to mind this other thing that we say to each other on Ash Wednesday, which is repent and believe in the gospel. Lent is a season of repentance. It's, it's confessing our sin before a holy God and experiencing contrition, which means sorrow, feeling bad about our sin, and then allowing God to do that change in our minds and in our hearts so that we could be different people as a result. Repentance literally means to turn around. Did you know that? Repentance means turn around. So imagine you're hiking through the woods on a trail, except that is the way that leads to destruction and to death. And so repent means I've got to turn around and go a different way. I've got to get on a different path because that other path, that new path is the way that leads to the cross of Jesus and to his resurrection and to new life in his name. And that's what repentance looks like. Now, repentance is not a one-time thing. Some of us, I think, think, well, I, can't, I believed in Jesus, I repented, I'm good to go. Friends, repentance is a daily reality. We need to do it every day of our lives. Think about it for a second. Um, let's say I did something to disappoint my wife, okay? So maybe I wasn't listening very well, or um, I didn't take out the trash, even though I promised I would. I know it's hard to imagine Pastor Brad making any mistakes, but just, just try, okay? Just humor me for a second. Put yourself in the shoes of my wife, and uh, you'll have no trouble imagining it. And so what my wife does not want to hear is, oh, I apologized back in 1997. I mean, isn't that, isn't that enough? No, no. Friends, we are always in danger of the possibility uh, of being separated from God and from each other. And so repentance is a daily habit that draws us closer to God and to one another. Now, what do these two ideas have in common? Sin on the one hand and death on the other, other than the fact that we don't like talking about it. What they have in common is they both point to the reality of our need for God. We need God's help. We need God's help with our sin because only God can forgive us. We need God's help when we face death because it's only by the grace of God that we can have eternal life. And so Lent is a season for us to realize and recognize and come to grips with the truth that we need God's help. We need God's help. We cannot live this life on our own or be and fulfill who we are called to be without the grace of God. So we are talking this season, this Lent, uh, we are reading from a story that is the story of how God comes to help humanity, and that is the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is the story about how God is coming to help human beings like you and me. And so today we start in John's prologue. This is the beginning of the Gospel. And these very fir first few verses paint a picture, uh, John's understanding of who God is and about how God is redeeming God's creation. John's prologue is one of the loftiest and most inspiring passages in the whole scripture, and it lays out John's major premise 
for his gospel. And I want you to notice the way it starts. Look with me at John 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning. What does that remind you of? Genesis, right? The very beginning of the scripture. So John is invoking the creation story in the beginning of his gospel. He's saying, in the beginning, starting the same way that the Bible starts in Genesis. And then John asks that, he says, in the beginning was what? The word. In the beginning was the word. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's helpful to know the Greek term for word is logos, L-O-G-O-S, logos. So that probably sounds to you like logic, right? So this is the the Greek uh, foundation for our word logic. It's also the uh, Greek term that we use as a suffix for the end of words like biology and psychology, which means the study of, right? So a word about these things. So we think of God's word as God's logic, God's mind, God's heart, the study of the things of God. Word can also mean the spoken word of God. Think about what you know about creation. How did creation come into being? God spoke and it happened, right? God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so the word of God is a creative word that God speaks out over the waters and raises up something New And so John says, in the beginning, this word was there in existence. And then John says something maybe unexpected in verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me. The word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. See, John is saying that God's word, God's heart, God's mind, God's reason and logic, God's will, God's desire to reveal God's self to us is all wrapped up in human flesh and has come to us as a person. The word of God has become a person, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. And so John's testimony is that the birth of Jesus on Christmas means God has moved into the neighborhood. God has moved into the neighborhood. After centuries of our sin and our estrangement and separation from God, you know, God tried everything God could think of. God sent the law. God sent the prophets over and over. God reached out to humans to try to persuade us of God's love for us, but nothing really seemed to do the trick. So God said, okay, I'll send myself. I'll send my only son. Maybe then they will get it that I love them this much. And so God sent the son, the word of God, Jesus Christ. And we know God's word. We know it in this book, right? We sometimes refer to the Bible as the word of God. But we know the word of God even more completely, even more fully in a person, in Jesus, who is the word made flesh. And so it's for this reason when we look into John's gospel, we refer to John's theology as a high Christology. John has a high Christology. That means he emphasizes the divinity of Jesus. He reminds us that Jesus, yes, he's fully human, but he's also fully God. And so John has this high Christology. Now, contrast John's Christology with that of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who have a much lower Christology because they emphasize the humanity of Jesus. And they remind us that uh, there is such a thing as Christian living, where we have to live the way Jesus lived. We have to follow. The invitation in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is come and follow Jesus. 
The invitation in the Gospel of John, however, is what? Believe. We are invited to believe in Jesus Christ. John says as much right at the end of his Gospel. And spoiler alert, the end, John says that the whole purpose for his gospel, and he does so in a single sentence in John chapter 20, verse 31. I imagine, you know, how, how great it would be to have a sermon that's just one sentence long. Wouldn't that be amazing? What a gift. So John chapter 20, verse 31 says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's saying, this is the reason I've written these things down, so that you may believe, and that through believing you may have life in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, John is reminding us, you know, uh, up against the other Gospels, that no matter how virtuous you may be, no matter how many good things you might do in your life, without the grace of Jesus Christ, you're lost, you cannot earn your salvation. It is a gift that comes to you when you believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the only way that we can be forgiven of our sin. He's the only way that we can have salvation. And the way we access this grace and take hold of it is by believing in him. Friends, by now I hope you've noticed that at Timberlake we preach for response. Have you noticed that? That we hope that you leave here different than how you were when you came. That you are doing something in your life as a response. Because when you hear this word, it changes you, right? When you believe it, it changes you. And so we hope that you are responding to the good news that you are hearing on Sunday morning. So this week, I want to invite you to respond in two ways. First, I want to invite you to respond by reading the Gospel of John. Go ahead and pull out your Lent devotions real quick. It looks like this. It's in your bulletin and, and tucked in there. Uh, you'll notice as you open it to the first page, the scriptures are pasted right in here for you. John 1 verses 1 through 5 is on Monday. You can read that. You can do this with your family. You can do this with your kids. Friends, this is designed so even your kids could lead it and read it in your house, and you could talk together about these things that matter. So I want to invite you and challenge you to read through the Gospel of John during the season of Lent, and that we would do that together. The second thing, even more important as a way of responding to the message today, I want to invite you to believe in Jesus if you've never believed in Jesus, friends, this is a great time to do it right now for the first time to confess and believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah and the one who's come to save you. Now, maybe you've believed in him a hundred or a thousand times already. It's time to do it again, to believe in him and to trust him and to give your life and say, Jesus, this life is yours and do with it what you want. I know that you are good and loving and that you have good things for me if I would only trust you. And so, friends, let me invite you to believe today. I want to tell you a story this morning uh, about a man named Charles Moose. Uh, if you recognize his name, uh, it's probably because he was involved with the Washington, D.C. sniper case, the sniper attacks that happened about 15 years ago in and around Washington, D.C. Over the course of three very terrifying weeks, a Montgomery County police chief, Charles Moose, became the public face of law enforcement's efforts to capture and to put an end to the actions of two men who were shooting innocent people in and around the city. 
And I want to tell you a story about uh, Chief uh, Charles Moose. But before I do that, I need to acknowledge another shooting that happened this week. On Wednesday, 17 people were murdered at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Their names are Alyssa, Scott, Martin, Nicholas, Aaron, Jamie, Chris, Luke, Kara, Gina, Joaquin, Elena, Meadow, Helena, Alex, Carmen, and Peter. They were teachers and they were students just going about their day. <laughs> and even though this happened hundreds of miles away, I need us to acknowledge that this could have been our kids, could have been your kids, it could have been my kids. The news outlets this week reminded us that this was the 25th school shooting since Columbine. 25th. Friends, now more than ever, we need God's help. And so I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to listen for the Holy Spirit to show us a way forward on this awful, awful reality that we face in our country. But I'm also going to ask you to do some other things besides pray. Prayer is good, and we can't do anything without it, but we must also do other things. Now, what are those other things? I'm going to be honest. I don't know. I don't have any great answers or great solutions, but I know something has to be done. And so we need to reject violence in our communities. Uh, we need to ensure access for mental health care for all of the people in our community. We need to discipline our children and teach them right from wrong. We need our lawmakers to enact legislation that will create safer communities and protect our children in the places where we live. Uh, friends, I want to acknowledge that uh, we're not probably going to agree on all the specifics when it comes to things like gun control. And I'm not going to ask us to try to agree on it. But I am going to ask you to agree that what we have right now is not working. What we have, the situation in our country and all of these many layers of complexity, it is not working. And so something different has to be done. I pray that we could be part of the solution for these things. I want to encourage you that things can change and things can get better. And, and this is the reason for the story of Officer Charles Moose. Uh, before Officer Moose was the chief of police in Montgomery County handling the D.C. sniper case, he was the chief of police in Portland, Oregon. Now, that in itself is, is not extraordinary, although it is admirable. And we tip our hats to all of our law enforcement men and women who work to keep us safe in this community. We're grateful to you. Uh, so what made Chief Moose extraordinary was not that uh, he was the chief, um, but what made him extraordinary was he took his very comfortable salary, which was about $90,000, and this was in 1993, so $90,000 was even more money back then, and instead of buying a really nice house in a really nice neighborhood, he and his wife bought a 75-year-old house in the King neighborhood of Northeast Portland, which was notorious for being the worst neighborhood in the whole city. Poverty was high, and drugs were plentiful, and gangs ran the streets, and they had the highest crime rate of any neighborhood in all of Portland. So most everyone who could afford to move out of that area had already moved out, except Officer Moose, he moved in. <laughs> he moved in, and that begs the question, right? Why? <laughs> why? Why would you do that? You can afford to live in a different place, in a nicer house, in a, in a nicer neighborhood. Why move into such an undesirable place? 
The neighborhood had the exhausted look of any worn-down city. Across the street from the Moose's house was a vacant lot, and the weeds grew as high as your kneecaps, and several houses down were drug houses where people bought and sold drugs, and the windows were boarded up. So why move in? Well, in an interview, Chief Moose, he said this, I've been trying to convince people not to retreat to stay in the city, to use the parks, to, to take back the streets. The chief said, moving here seemed like the best way to walk the talk. That'll preach, won't it? Yeah. So the chief moved in, and the war on crime uh, found its way right to his own doorstep. One morning, a, uh, a lady of the night offered him her services. Uh, later that same day, some young kids tried to sell him drugs. Uh, it seems that his neighbors were oblivious to his real identity. They had no idea who he really was as the new chief of police. So in the interview, uh, the chief said, you know, it's not so bad. And with a wry smile, he said, living here keeps me close to the people who need me the most. Not everybody thought it was such a great idea for him to buy a house in this neighborhood. Uh, even the officers in his department who were mostly supportive, they said to the chief, sir, we're, we're really worried about you and your wife. The chief realized what they were really saying was, uh, gee whiz, that's the dumbest thing anybody's ever done, <laughs> sir. But some good things were happening after he moved in. Many neighbors were grateful for his presence. The lady next door started charging more rent because, hey, after all, you know, you're living next to the chief. Uh, a woman one Sunday stopped by his house after church and thanked him for moving in, saying this was the first time she had left her house in years to take a walk around the neighborhood. Finally, she felt safe enough to do that. The chief said, if nothing else, there's a real uptick in patrol cars in the neighborhood because after all, these guys know that their chief is on the ground watching. That's crazy, right? I mean, who does that? Who puts all their eggs in this one basket? Who takes all the resources at their disposal and seemingly throws them away on an investment that promises no resale value whatsoever? The story would be unbelievable if it weren't true. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. That's crazy, right? What kind of God does that? takes all the resources at God's disposal and seemingly throws them away on an investment like us. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son. God moved into the neighborhood, and that has made all the difference.